in as much as we're very different as a world, when you take a thousand year perspective, you realize that similar things happen to similar regions across time and space. But we also see telemedicine as a way for us to actually promote some of these behaviors that are positive for the climate. I think before we go ahead and say, let's invest all this money in building something new, we need to look at what do we currently have and how can we improve what we currently have. Welcome to season three of the Beyond Capital podcast. People always ask me, what is the secret sauce to marrying profit with purpose? We're back for another season to bring you the stories of successful leaders that are building and scaling purpose-driven businesses. I'm Eva Yazari, general partner of Beyond Capital Ventures. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Scoot. Together, Eva and I have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We wanna show you how conscious leadership translates impact in all facets of a business and how it can show up in a company's operations product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. Whether you're a leader of a company, team, household, or just yourself, we hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of impact for you and feeling inspired to take action every day. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Sangu Dele. Sangu is the founder and CEO of CarePoint, a tech-forward healthcare system-building Africa's healthcare future using technology and innovation. He is also the founder and chairman of Golden Palm Investments, an African-focused diversified holding company from which CarePoint was launched. He holds, and there's a lot of these, an AB, JD, an MBA from Harvard, a master's from Oxford University, and a PhD from the University of Birmingham. Welcome, Sangu. Great to have you. Great to be here. You are our first guest from Ghana. Welcome. It's great. Yay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank and you. And gre- greetings from Ghana. You're yeah. also our best guest from Ghana Sunny. so far. Yes, you're our best guest <laughs> from Ghana. Well, as you can see, we like to have a lot of fun on this show, and we're really excited to talk to you today about healthcare, about your big visions, about even being an investor on the African continent. But first, I would love to start with you and your upbringing. I would love for you to just give us more details on the influences that shaped who you are and what you're doing today. Absolutely. So, you know, I grew up in Ghana where I was born and raised and moved to the U.S. on a scholarship to attend high school at the Petty School in New Jersey when I was about 15 and growing up in Ghana, my, my father is a doctor and a human rights activist. We grew up with, at the time, he had co-founded the African Commission on Health and Human Rights Promoters, and they did a lot of work with the civil war in Liberia and Sierra Leone. So I grew up with a lot of refugees from Liberia and Sierra Leone, which had really formative impact on my upbringing. You know, I'm the last of five, grew up in a big family, um, last of five. My mother is one of eight, and my father is one of 86. Wow. Grew up in a very, very large family. And so family has always been super important to me. So I have a question about your upbringing as well. I've never been to Ghana. I'm curious, what would surprise me when I visit Ghana for the very first time? Well, the first thing that's going to surprise you when you eat our jollof is <laughs> you're going to be shocked that Nigerians call what they make jollof. 
you're just, you're just like that's the first thing. Oh, we're casting that's shade on. Thing. Oh no, we're, we're we're going with the lost slander, right? Right from the first <laughs> inning. <laughs> but I, I think that, in all seriousness, most people who visit Ghana will talk about the hospitality of the people here, and it's it's not just because I'm from here. I've spent time now in about 47 African countries, and I think Ghana is a standout with respect to that. Where Within the culture, it's it's very big on on being hospitable and and on you know uh, receiving others, so that it's a big part of the culture. The other thing that I think will surprise you to the upside is even though a lot of our history has mostly been dominated by men, also because it's mostly been written by men. When you come to the country, you're actually going to realize that the backbone of our economy largely rests on women entrepreneurs. They are the the vast majority they make up the vast majority of um, informal entrepreneurs in fact the rate of women entrepreneurship in ghana outpaces that of men and so that that's the other thing that that will surprise you Hmm. thank you yeah i mean we had another healthcare founder on the show jacqueline kong a couple episodes ago and she also pointed that out that women tend to start more businesses across the globe but they're not businesses that necessarily grow in scale. And pivoting back to you, Sangu, in what you're creating, I know you you went from Harvard and Oxford to becoming an investor. So tell us a little bit more about your perhaps prior career or prior life before you got into becoming a healthcare entrepreneur. Absolutely. So I think my my journey starts, I mean, first and foremost, if, as my education credentials probably suggested, I'm a super nerd. My entrepreneurial journey actually started in the world of nerddom. <laughs> I'm a big history buff, particularly interested in economic history and other histories also. I love biographical histories and world histories, but economic history. I looked at economic historical data from the year 1000 AD to the year 2000 AD, and I kind of crunched a lot of that data. As I was looking at trends that emerged from the data, it became very clear to me that in as much as we're very different as a world, when you take a thousand year perspective, you realize that similar things happen to similar regions across time and space, right? And geography. And so my takeaway was, cause you can, you can plot it out and you see as per capita income increases, as urbanization rates increase, as societies get debt. The same things happen in terms of structural changes to diet, in terms of new certain demands for certain services. Uh, the same things kept on happening over and over again across different time periods, across different geographies. And so my thesis was very simple. Why should Africa be any different? Mm-hmm. And I saw a huge opportunity to invest behind that thesis. It was really simple looking at what happened in other parts of the world and drawing similar conclusions for Africa and building sub-theses behind that and building businesses behind those sub-theses. So, for example, one of the things we came up with was to say there's increased globalization, right? As you have increased globalization and increased connectivity, you've seen in other parts of the world it has increased the trading among merchants and smaller merchants. Because in the beginning, you start off with just large, massive multinational merchants that will be able to do that sort of trading. But as you have connectivity and um, especially with the internet making us such a, a smaller global village, it opens up the possibilities for smaller merchants to be able to trade with one another. What does that mean if smaller African merchants start to trade? It means that there's going to be increased demand for foreign exchange. And so we took that thesis and got a bunch of licenses from the central bank and basically built like a, a travel X for Africa type of business model and built about eight of those businesses supporting 
merchants and traders who, who were going to do business with, with, with their counterparts globally. And so we did a number of those different things in coming up with, with ideas and creating businesses from scratch. And it was through that that we then became accidental venture capitalists because we did something in agriculture. We did something in real estate. We did something in, in aquaculture. We did something in, in financial services, I mentioned, and, and in healthcare which I'll get to. But then we realized that there's a limit to our bandwidth, right? There's only so many companies you can start, even if you are as ambitious and energetic as we were. And so we saw there were lots of other entrepreneurs who were also tackling and seeing opportunities in the same way we saw opportunities. And, and we, we thought, well, you know, we, we have a lot of experience in, in starting our businesses and, and, and building these businesses. So why don't we take some of the cash flow that we're generating from these businesses and start investing it in other entrepreneurs, take a stake in their business and help them grow using our social capital, our networks and our business knowledge and expertise. Is um, that, and that's how we accidentally became venture capitalists. Is that Golden Palm? Yes. That's Golden Palm. And Sangu's being that's- humble. He was one of the investors in some of the, the last wave of African unicorns. Correct. Yes. We've had great success with Golden Palm. We have about 25% of the unicorns um, in Africa in our portfolio, albeit it's uh, the African unicorns is a, is a very small exclusive club, but we are proud to have 25% of the unicorns, including Andela, Flutterwave, you know, we're the earliest investors in M Pharma, Wasoko, Frontier Car Group, which Nasrez acquired for $700 million in 2019, which was our first exit. Um, so it's been, it's been a great run. So give us a sense of the scale of Golden Palm, just in terms of like assets under management or the size of the fund or, or anything like that. Yeah. So we currently have about $100 million of, of assets under management. Wow. But there's more because. <laughs> Wait, there's more. I met Sangu. <laughs> I actually met Sangu after getting to know his book, Making Futures, Young Entrepreneurs in a Dynamic Africa. And when you wrote this book, and I'll, I'll let you tell me the, the exact year of publishing, but I think it was a couple years ago, there seemed to be a pivot in your career. There seemed to be a pivot from like, okay, I'm an accidental VC to now I want to operate a company. And that's how CarePoint was born. Is that a good description of what happened? Yes, yes. So, you know, I initially started as an entrepreneur, right? So, I mean, if we go back to my first entrepreneurial venture, which my mom uh, ruined, was uh, they were building the road in East Legon right in front of our house. Back then, there there were no roads in East Legon at all. And so they were now constructing the road and uh, there was was nowhere to buy anything for, I mean, you you had to walk a couple of miles to get somewhere to even buy drinks or whatever it is. There was nothing there. We had electricity in our house. We were able to connect it to electricity and a fridge. So I used to put um, water in just in the plastic bags and freeze it before I go to school. And when I come back from school, I would sell it to the, uh, to the construction workers. And my mom found the, the change <laughs> in, in my uh, school uniform and was like, where is this money from? Did you steal it? I'm like, no, I didn't. <laughs> and when I told her what I did, she got upset. She was like, you know, you got to give them the water for free. You can't be charging them for water. They're building a road which will benefit from. So, of course, the big takeaway from that was when you make money, don't tell mommy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I, I started as an entrepreneur. Then I kind of became this venture capitalist. In, in VC, my big thesis was, look, I think technology is going to be uh, one of the biggest disruptors 
we've seen on the African continent. I think it's going to completely reimagine industries and it's going to have this leapfrogging impact, which will allow us, similar to what we've seen with the mobile phone, to completely accelerate our development in certain areas. As I was investing, one of the areas I was very, I've been very passionate and interested in is healthcare at a very personal level. I was getting frustrated with um, what I was seeing in terms of I wasn't seeing the sort of scale and the sort of execution that I would like to tackle the massive problem we have in healthcare. And I saw a huge advantage with technology. But most, you know, most of the attention was people focusing on fintech and people focusing on these other quote unquote sexier sectors. But to me, the the need and the opportunity in healthcare was was so pressing, so large, so obvious that I said it's, it, we should do it. And that that's when we decided to uh to, to launch care points. When was that? What year? So we officially launched CarePoint, formerly Africa Health Owners, in 2017. But the pilot that led to CarePoint started actually in 2010. You know, we first started having I see. ideas around healthcare to say, look, I, I think there's a way in which technology can disrupt healthcare. So we, we did it as a pilot where we acquired one small clinic in Ghana, in Tema. We brought in technology. We digitized. And our thesis was simple at that time. Our thesis was technology plus customer-centric care. Bring those two together. We should be able to improve quality outcomes. We should be able to improve the patient's experience and also improve uh, the financial performance. And and that played out. I mean, we were able to, over a couple of years, we increased revenues by 15 times. We took margins from negative to nothing. I mean, best margins were, were low single digits on the best month. And, and we, we grew margins over that time period to 30 plus percent. And we still own that clinic. And that clinic is now doing an excess of 40% margins. From there, we, we kind of piloted that for a few years and did a second clinic. And that was also successful in Kumasi. And then we took the learnings from that and said, look, there's something here. And we added a third to that thesis, which is scale. And that was how CarePoint was born. So I'm an investor in CarePoint, full disclosure. But what I find so incredible about the business is the strategy of roll up and transformation. And you have holdings now in Ghana, Nigeria, Egypt, and Kenya. And we got involved because of our deal origination in East Africa through Kenya. And I sat down with your team in March in Kenya to talk about the quality, you know, improvement and what that was doing for, you know, the business effectively. And I actually was talking to the team about this book that I love called The Checklist Manifesto written by Atul Gawande. Yeah. And This book is important to mention because it's basically a manifesto to ask all doctors to please use a checklist. And your team substantiated that that is absolutely what improves quality in the branch hospitals in Kenya. And as you were pointing out, that translates directly to margin improvement and also scale. Tell us a little bit more about the unique model that you employ, because it's not just starting a hospital from scratch. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's not even just acquiring an asset. It's acquiring assets and, and then doing much more with them. No, absolutely. So let me first provide some context, some helpful context. If I look at the Africa healthcare market today, you're looking at a quarter of a trillion dollar market. That's 45% government pay, 45% private cash pay, 5% private insurance, 5% non-profits. You're looking at a population of about 1.3 billion people, right? So 15% of global population, yet we represent 25% of global disease burden, and we only have 
3% of global healthcare workers. And this is in the context of a global shortage of medical personnel that's now top 4 million and expected to keep growing. Within this context, we can't just go out and just say, look, let's go and just keep building new hospitals and keep building new hospitals, right? Because <laughs> where are we going to get the medical personnel to be able to actually staff those hospitals? Secondly, I think before we go ahead and say, let's invest all this money in building something new, we need to look at what do we currently have and how can we improve what we currently have? Because there are a lot of idle assets, there are a lot of suboptimal healthcare assets that are there right now that could use transformation, could use improvement, could use technology, could use some creativity and innovation in allowing them to rise up to meet the needs and the demands of the populations. And so that's been the driving thing for us to say that, look, we there's limited capital. We need to be very thoughtful and efficient about how we deploy capital in ways that will achieve the greatest good per dollar. And we believe very strongly that the best way for us to do that is by leveraging some of the existing, improving them, transforming them, allowing them to significantly improve capacity and quality and performance. And then, of course, on the back of that, because we do this hub and spoke model, we're able to also open new locations, right? So in Ghana, as a case study, we took over the Ghana business, we transformed it, and we, we've now been able to expand its locations where we now have 25 branches in Ghana, in addition to our telemedicine platform where we're able to reach people wherever they are remotely through virtual consultations with our providers. So is your business sort of like single payer, single provider, like kind of an insurance situation, or do you... Is there any healthcare insurance in Ghana and do you take that or is it, how is it structured sort of like uh, CarePoint? Is it like Kaiser kind of permanente here in the US or is it more just like a, a hospital that has pairs from the outside? We have a mix of patients who will pay out of pocket, so who pay cash, which as I mentioned is actually quite reflective of the broader healthcare industry, right, across the continent where 45% of the quarter of a trillion dollar market is cash pay. That largely also reflects on our numbers. The half of the business comes from insurance where disproportionately represented there, right? Because ins private insurance is only about 5% of the African healthcare market. But rapidly growing, insurance penetration is in most countries on the continent is, is sub 10% with respect to health insurance. And so there's lots of room for growth, lots of opportunity for growth. On, so we currently accept both private insurance and um, out of pocket in some markets, uh, Kenya in particular, and um, we'll be doing so in Egypt. We accept government insurance, but only in those markets because there's some reliability on payments. Um, we do not do that. We used to in the past in Ghana and we stopped accepting it because, you know, they would pay you after two years, which, uh, which simply is not sustainable. Tough for cash flow. Yeah, exactly. It's just yeah. not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And, and you'll end up having very high receivable balances. If you get all your vendors and, and employees to accept payment after two years, you'll be fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, be like, you know what, this month I'll pay you in 2025. <laughs> but the healthcare costs are not the same. So when we're thinking about paying out of pocket, I mean, our audience is largely American. When we're thinking about paying out of pocket, the costs are more affordable for cash payers as well. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. The reality is we, you know, I, I was joking to a, a friend in the U.S. when I was, I was sharing the stats 
um, you know, we currently have 65 hospitals and clinics in our network and we serve a million patients. And, and I was joking that, you know, if we had the same size operation in the U.S., it would be a massive multi-billion dollar yeah. Um, revenue business because the average patient in the U.S. is spending thousands and thousands and tens thousands of, of thousands, tens of thousands. You know, we've, we've all seen those uh, um, posts of someone who go and um, have some procedure and get a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars in bills sent to them. This is not the case here. The the price point is much lower. In fact, and we actually segmented based on on markets, right? So if we're in lower income neighborhoods, we'll price accordingly. So there are certain places that you know, someone will come and they'll, you know, in a, in a high income neighborhood, you might come and you might pay your $50 to see a specialist. But in some of our lower income neighborhoods, you only pay $5. And so we've, we've been able to also within our model, we have almost like a cross subsidization model. We think of it like a plane. If I take a plane right now to come hang out with you guys in Dallas, there's no direct, but let's assume there's a direct. We're going to leave everyone who leaves our cry is going to end up in Dallas, right? We're going to end up in the same destination, but some of us will sit in the back and we're comfortable sitting in the back in the middle seat, eating whatever sandwich they give us. Someone would want to pay more for economy comfort where they'll maybe get to stretch their leg a little bit more. Someone will want a flat bed and will want to pay a lot more, right? And so there's that segmentation, but we're all getting the same plane. It's not like a different plane's taking us. Same plane, same service. You might just have a nicer take in uh, first class and I might have a smaller sandwich in, in economy, but we're basically getting the same basic level of service, right? And we're, and we're arriving safely. So it's a similar thing where we did, where we said, if the airlines can do it, why sh- shouldn't we do it in healthcare? Especially because being able to price discriminate that way means that I can subsidize costs for those on the lower end of the spectrum. And so that's what we do. There's, there's a, a, a fast track slash VIP where you can pay premium, you get to, you know, you get like a nice lounge, just like in the airport, in your business class lounge. And by charging you a lot more, we're able to subsidize what, what we'll be able to charge uh, those on the lower strata of the socioeconomic ladder. So it allows us to be able to broaden and democratize our access through this price differentiation model. That's really cool. When you take over a new clinic, when you buy a new or a new hospital chain, what's the number one and first thing that you do? to make change? For me, at the end of the day, people can talk about change and talk about systems and processes and strategy and all of that. I think all that is largely irrelevant in the beginning because I think all of that will make or break depending on people. It starts with people and it ends with people, right? All the change can only come when you have the buy-in of people. So the first and most important thing that I do and we do as a team is to focus on the people because, uh, you know, any, any acquisition, any, any, anything of that sort, as you can imagine, is going to create a lot of anxieties, right? And so the first thing we really do is to reach out and connect to the people, take our time getting to know everyone and to, to, to first learn because we don't, and as much as we have our ways of doing things and we go in and we have our strategy around technology and, and quality controls and all these different things. We also recognize that um, we don't know everything and there's a lot we can learn from everyone. So in every situation we go in, we connect to the people, we learn, we gather as much information as possible. And then we then take that and we then actually sell our vision to the people, right? Because we need their buy-in. Right. Um, because, it, it, you know, without their buy-in, it's not going to be sustainable. 
We need them to own that. So we try to then co-create a shared vision with them, right? And when we co-create the shared vision, there's shared ownership. So we're all aligned to say, hey, this is where we want to go. This is where we want to take quality improvement. This is why this matters. This is where we want to take technology. This is why this matters. And then from there, once you get that part of the puzzle right, the rest becomes fairly easier, right? It's, a, it's easier to roll out your strategy. It's easier to figure out your processes. It's easier to do all those things once you have the buy-in of your constituents, once you have the buy-in of your people. That makes a lot of sense because, first of all, there's a shortage of healthcare workers. And so the more you can retain and kind of get them on board, the better. And also it's frontline customer service, which is a difficult business or a different difficult job kind of anywhere because mm-hmm. um, you're dealing with sick people, angry people, sad people. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's not easy to be a healthcare worker. My son's a paramedic and, you know, the, the hardest days for him are the days when he's helping people who are totally not grateful and totally angry at him, mm. you know, and they're lashing out at him yeah. and he's just like, why are you doing this to me? You know, you would die if I didn't help you right now. Yeah. So it can be difficult for those yeah. workers. It can. And I think healthcare can have a much bigger vision in the world. And I think sometimes it's constrained by the systems. And I know that Sangu being a conscious leader, and thank you for explaining that uh, example to us, Sangu, because I think it really highlights the purpose-driven leadership piece of your work. But I know that you're trying to go above and beyond. And there are two areas I want to focus on before we get into your rapid fire questions. The The first is... You are an Eisenhower Fellow focused on climate and healthcare, and the first ever study on how climate and healthcare relate on the African continent. How do they relate? I'll tell you what um, shocked me when I was looking at the nexus between health and climate. You know, a lot of times, those of us in healthcare tend to have a little bit of a uh, Red Cross complex of you know, we're saving the world, we're the good guys, and, and we can walk proudly with our chests out. When it comes to climate, not so fast. What would shock you is if the healthcare sector as a whole was a country, we would be the fifth largest polluter in the world. Wow. We're responsible for 4.4% of global net emissions as a sector. Yet we know, we know from all the research that one of the greatest impacts of Climate change is adverse impacts on health, mm. right? We're seeing this. We're seeing this in, in, in air pollution oh, and the yeah. impact it's having on respiratory illnesses and cardiovascular diseases. I recently joined the World Economic Forum Global Future Council on Clean Air. It is staggering, staggering when you actually look at the data and you see what's happening with respect to air pollution globally. Yes. And to me, I say it cannot make sense if we as a sector as a healthcare sector where we're committed to improving lives, that commitment cannot just be limited to saying when the patient comes in, we, you know, we make you better. We need to also be committed to saying, how do we prevent the patient from coming in in the first place, right? How do we actually block them from, from needing to come to our services? And the role, the complicity we have in climate, and uh, we need to address that. And mm-hmm. so we, we've taken the stance that it, we can't suggest it on the sidelines. As part of our mission, we need to have very serious, very committed action with respect to, to, to climate. And so we've been doing that in a number of ways. We've made big commitments on renewables where we've been 
in all the in all the structures that we 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 have control over we've been putting in renewable energy we started uh, putting solar in a number of our hospitals across the board and it's an initiative we're going to run to get to 100% renewable in in all the facilities that we control the benefits of that is obvious right not only is it great from a climate perspective but it's also great for the bottom line because it also ends up saving us money in terms of energy costs so it's a win-win another thing that we're doing as part of climate action and is also good for the consumer is actually really pushing a lot of our telemedicine so now you know for all patients we see reviews we've been pushing a lot of patients for reviews who in the past they'll come into the hospital we tell them to use our telemedicine platform and it's good for the climate obviously because if before they have to drive an hour banning all those emissions to come to the hospital and go back they don't need to do that anymore there's no point in them doing that they can just sit in their homes and they can do a virtual consultation with our doctors and so we see telemedicine not just as the way to democratize access but we also see telemedicine as a way for us to actually promote some of these behaviors that are positive for the climate what do you think about single use plastics in healthcare you know there's a lot of disposable stuff is that does that add up or is that is that like kind of de minimis so i mean look the the most of the most of the the sins of healthcare come in the supply chain and so down to you know waste management supply chain logistics all those things is where you see a lot of 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 the climate sense um single use plastics so there's, there's tension there right where on the one hand you have to balance the the need to reduce waste and to reduce your usage of single use plastic but you need to balance that appropriately with ensuring that we absolutely cannot compromise on quality with respect to anything that can impact human lives right and especially when we get into things like surgeries and and those sorts of things where you know you really need to ensure that everything you're using is is clean and is sanitized and is sterilized and will not actually end up creating more harm than good. I think that there has been some there's there's been a number of innovations happening in the space and there've been a couple of things we've been looking at in that in that space but I think it's one where we need to tread carefully and make sure that we balance patient safety with climate goals. Yeah. There are some things that I think you can necessarily solve for. I have to squeeze in this last point, which is you've talked a lot to me about being constrained on cost, on on human capital, but you also are developing the largest database of Black health outcomes on planet Earth. And you've talked to me about how there's a value of that beyond just the African continent. So... How does that fit into your strategy? I mean, we've, you're acquiring clinics, you're improving, you're improving all of the basics when it comes to clinics and hospitals and their daily operations, but you're also using data to help healthcare be better for a particular population that's been underrepresented in healthcare. It'd be great for you to expand a little bit more on that. No, absolutely. And, uh, and here's the analogy I'm going to use. Let's take Amazon. Amazon's core business was selling books online and later it became selling everything online but their core business is selling products online where you go you purchase you get the product delivered to you amazon then started to build a number of capabilities around seven that main goal of how do they sell products to you those capabilities huge capabilities they had to build in supply chain and logistics huge capabilities they had to build in data analytics 
huge capabilities they have to build in all these different verticals. One of those, as they're building this and they're mining so much data, is how to power it all. And that's how AWS was created right. initially to serve their internal needs. And in building that out to serve their internal needs, they realized that this, this is value for everybody. Right. And it's now something that everyone, I mean, we use AWS as well. And everyone in the world can now use it and can benefit off that thing that they built. And so in a similar way, we approach this and saying that, look, there's a lot of value from technology in allowing us to transform how we go about doing healthcare. And the technology is not just in creating efficiencies, it's in giving us data that allows us to make clinically relevant decisions, data based decisions. It also allows us to be able to, when you take mass data sets, to do interesting things because of the gaps we have with the shortage of medical personnel. So we can start looking at ways in which we can use machine learning algorithms around chronic uh, disease management, hypertension, diabetes, things like that. And so as we started thinking about those things, we realized that we're actually sitting on, you know, a century and a half years of data within Mm -hmm. our group. And we're serving a million patients every year, but the base on which we sit is tens and tens and tens of millions of patients' records. And we realize that we're uniquely positioned to actually build what would be the largest global database on black population health. And where this becomes important and relevant is it allows us to then be able to build digital tools on top of that, right? It allows us to be able to do interesting things like one of the big issues we've had with with, with clinical research and medicines is it's excluded a lot of people who look like me, right? It's excluded a lot of women. It's excluded a lot of people of color. And so you end up having products that actually have not been tested on broader swaths of the population. We can help solve for that, right? We can help uh, solve for for diversification of clinical trials because we already have seamless, easy access to patient data, and we can understand who is who would make more sense for certain trials, right? So, so that's one clear case point. The other clear case point is building these AI models around chronic disease management, and these are things that can go beyond our network and the patients we serve, and similar to what AWS to the rest of the world in our healthcare part, it can also be exported to support um, other parts of the world. And we'll also have, I mean, in the West, especially where you have massive disparities in care along some of these racial and gendered lines, et cetera, you have an opportunity for us to actually create tools that can help address some of those inequities. So we're really quite excited about it. It's uh, it's a big long-term tech project for us internally, and we think it's going to be one of the greatest creators of value in, in the sector and in the business. Incredible. All right. Well, now is the, the time to get to know you a little bit more personally at the end of the show. Let's start with the rapid fire questions. Sangu, what book is on your nightstand right now? So right now, the book I'm reading is uh, it's called Radical Inclusion. Mm. It's an incredible book. It's uh, seven steps to help you create a more just workplace, home and world. It was written by a very dear friend of mine and an old classmate, uh, David Senge. David is the current minister of education in Sierra Leone. And when he took over as minister, he realized that pregnant girls couldn't go to school. And he said, this makes no sense. But at the time he said it, the president was against, was in favor of that policy. His mother was in favor of that policy. His daughter was in favor of that policy. Like everyone in the country was in favor of that policy. And he had to go through this crazy journey of convincing everyone and overturning the policy. And and this book basically tells that story. Okay, next question. What is your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? 
I don't drink coffee. I only drink decaf. So it would either be, you know, a, a, a decaf cappuccino or. That's the only um, thing you've said today that I don't tea. like. <laughs> He's young. <laughs> so so I must back. say, I love, I, I used to love coffee, but I stopped drinking it in 2010. I used to have migraines and my neurologist thought there was a nexus there, but I love the smell of coffee. So I love mm. having coffee drinkers around me so I can live vicariously through them. Okay. Name something that's giving you hope right now. The younger generation. And I say this, I'm fortunate to be involved in a lot of programs where I mentor young people. And there have been many times and the last 18 months has had a lot of these moments where, you know, you just wake up and you're just like, the, the, the system is just screwed. <laughs> like, what's the point? So you get frustrated about, you know, something not working as it should. And sometimes, sometimes I can get cynical about the world and deeply frustrated. And every single time I talk to young people, I get inspired personally by their ability to see new possibilities and how they haven't yet been corrupted. I love talking to children because children are creative, their dreams, they, school almost beats out the creativity mm. and the amazingness out of you, right? The system and real world just takes well it all said. out of you. And young people still have that. And I, I, I love that. What's a trend that you're watching right now in, in healthcare in Africa? A big trend I'm paying a lot of attention to is, um, is actually around uh, chronic diseases because we're, I'm seeing a massive shift. Where, when I was growing up, it was mostly infectious diseases, right? You know, tuberculosis, malaria, HIV, AIDS, et cetera. Um, now you're seeing a massive change. The rise in oncology cases in Kenya, for example, is, is shocking. And I think it's a trend that's going to be here for a while as we continue to see per capita incomes increase and people live longer. And it's, we're not, we're not ready for that wave. And uh, so it's something I'm following very closely. And, and that's part of what also is really pushing me around how we can leverage AI for chronic disease management, because I think that's the next big wave that we're, we're just not ready for. That's AI for good. So That's AI for good. <laughs> <laughs> Last rapid fire. What is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Be kinder to yourself. Yeah, self-compassion. Yeah, self-compassion. I think um, my, my therapist has this trick she always does to me where she will almost Socratically take whatever issue I'm having and reconstitute it as my friend having that issue. And, and it's, it's almost bizarre if you watch a video rerun of it, because when I'm talking about it, about myself, I'm extremely hard on myself. And then suddenly when it shifts and it's someone else, I'll be full of a lot of compassion and empathy. And then she'll always tell me, you need to do that for yourself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if that's, if there's one thing I would uh, tell my younger self, it would be, be, be a little kinder. There's a fine line between high performance and self compassion. <laughs> we'll have to explore that in part two of this episode. Sangu, there's so much more we can speak about. I'd love to have you on next season. And before we go, um, just give us you know, three words that describe the next 10 years for you and CarePoint. What should we expect? The next 10 years, I mean, it's going to be epic. Epic. It's going to be epic. It's going to be epic. It's going to be transformational. Nice. And it is going to be legacy defining. 
Love it. It's been a real pleasure. And just to throw one more thing in here, you do have a great TED Talk, so everybody should go and listen to your TED Talk entitled There's No Shame in Taking Care of Your Mental Health. And we will put that in the show notes. Thank you, Sangu. It's always amazing to spend 45 minutes talking and learning from you. What a great interview. Thank you both. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. Once again, it's clear that conscious leaders can find a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company in a truly holistic way, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me at EA Stevens on Twitter. And you can follow me at Conscious Investor on Instagram.